We're going to be in Matthew 18, like I said, and we're going to be looking at Scripture, what Jesus has to say about the little ones. And Ken preached about that a couple weeks ago. I'm, um, and, and then today is going to pick up where that leaves off. Okay. So I want to, I want to, rem, I'm going to go back over just a bit of that just to read through it, just to remind us. But before we do that, I'd like to just pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we get to be called your sheep, that we as your people are the flock that you shepherd by the power and grace of your spirit. We need that. It's interesting you pick sheep because they're not very bright animals when it comes to what we would say is obvious common sense kinds of things, even as an animal. And yet, Lord, spiritually, sometimes we are the same way. And yet, Lord... Your grace is sufficient, and you are continually growing us deep and wide in our, in our knowledge and understanding of who you are and who we are in light of that. And so we, we ask you to continue to shepherd us well so that we might not find ourselves going from one ditch to the next. But when we do, that we would realize that you're there to pull us out again that when we wander from the flock, you're there to pursue us and bring us back because of your mercy and your grace. Lord, as we think about how Jesus thought about new believers in the wake of a baptism of a child, Lord, it is my prayer that you will help us think about the people that you put on our hearts today. And that might be somebody we know. It might be a family member. It might be someone in this room. It might be a friend, and it might be us. And so, Lord, I just pray you'll speak to us and give us a heart that's open and a mind that is open to what you want to say to us, and then give us really just the courage to act on that. We ask it in in your holy, precious name. Amen. Awesome. Today we're answering the question, how do you care, how does Jesus want us to care for new believers? Okay? I did not plan the uh, baptism to be today. That was just a bow on top of this beauty. I just, I thought it was amazing. In fact, it didn't even occur to me until we were back in, in the green room praying and, and it just clicked for me. I was like, wow, God, you're so good at orchestrating all of this. So I love that. Um, we're going to be start looking at verses 10 through 14 in detail today, but I want to read from chap, from the beginning of the chapter so that I can catch us up. Some of you may not have heard and, and this is all very tightly tied together when it talks about little ones, when it talks about children, and what does that mean? And I I just think there's a lot of commentary that's already in the passage that we just need to hear. And then as we get to 10, we'll we'll slow down. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 18 of Matthew, written by one of the 12 disciples named Matthew. This is his account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're just working through it a, a passage at a time each week. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, which is your cue to say, well, I need to write this down. Or if you're a student, this is going to be on the test. Okay. Uh, Truly, I tell you, unless you change, some translations say turn, some translations go as far as to say convert or be converted. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, in other words, humbles themselves, 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, then he defines it, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck. That's like a big, big rock shaped like a millstone to grind wheat on. And to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Then Jesus pronounces a woe. He, he pronounces blessings and woes. Here's a woe. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven, but that's not his point here. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Lord God, I pray that you will speak and say what you want to say, that you will find hearts and minds receptive to your word, and that uh, anything I say that is not helpful or from you, that they'll just not even hear it. It'll just fleet right on by. But the things that you want to stick, may they get traction in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So quick context here. This is a, a chapter that kind of stands on its own as far as the other chapters of, of Matthew. Um, but we are in the, four, this is one of the, this is the fourth of five teaching discourses that Jesus has been doing. And this particular one, his focus, the context is he's speaking about and to believers. Okay, that may surprise you when we get to this, when we start talking about the lost sheep, because we're used to hearing that parable taught from Luke, and Luke is very evangelistically geared in that chapter 15 where that's found. Because um, it talks about the lost coin, talks about the lost sheep, talks about the lost son, the prodigal son. Those are all in the context of teaching about evangelism. Matthew, however, is very focused on believers. Okay? So he's talking about people who have already trusted Christ, people who are already considered family, citizens of the kingdom, if you will. But early on, and when Ken was preaching about this passage, he, he kind of pointed this out. Jesus was... Uh, Jesus made it really clear when the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, they were all assuming they're in the kingdom, right? Why And why not, right? Jesus is the king. He's just been declared in chapter 16. Peter says, you are the Christ, which is, means you're the king, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, and, and they're following him. He chose them. So they're all like, well, if he's going to be high and mighty, we're going to be high and mighty. And so then they start to think that through, and what does that feel like? What does that look like? So it makes sense that they might actually start arguing about, well, who's the greatest out of us? Well, let's see. Peter got the right answer, so he gets to be the favorite. Uh, Peter, James, and John got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration the other day. So Andrew's probably going, well, I'm the one that found Peter. What's up with that, Jesus? I mean, at least you could have let me go up with you. And so there's this tension among the ranks 
And then you have Judas Iscariot in there who's not even truly a follower of Christ. And you've got quite the hodgepodge of tension uh, and everybody wanting it to be about them. And Jesus breaks into this conversation. He says, whoa, back up. You need to make sure you're even in the kingdom, which was totally appropriate when you realize who's there. He says, before you start arguing about something you shouldn't be arguing anyway, who's the greatest, you need to ask yourself, am I even in it? In other words, you can't be a citizen of the kingdom if you're not a son or a daughter of the king. And that's a personal relational thing. And this is the point he wants to drive home to these these disciples, these 12. And so he does that. We looked at that last week. And then he gives warning to those who would cause these little ones, these little children. And and he uses this child as as a prop. And and there's, there's, we don't know how old the child was, but I suspect this was a very young child. So um, our oldest grandson, Lincoln, is two and a half years old. And if you think, uh, one commentator said he thought this child was two, between two and three. So I thought, okay, I get to talk about my grandson. That's awesome. So, um, I've, But this is true, and I, someone had to point it out to me. But if you've noticed with a child that's like two or three years old, when you tell that child some, you give that child some information, they really, if it's coming from mom, and maybe even from dad, they generally at that age will receive it. They'll believe it. It's called implicit faith. I mean, think about that. The child hears information, the child takes it in, and it's kind of like, okay, because of the source. They believe, they trust the source. Now, as they get older, right, This we start to see the rebellious spirit come through and out, and they... They certainly don't act like they believe it, even if they do, and we start to see them be who they are. And, and not that that doesn't ever happen to a two- or three-year-old, but, but this idea of if my mom tells me this is good, then I'm going to believe her because she's trustworthy, and a good mom is trustworthy, and this child is real. And, this, so this, and I've noticed even with my grandchild, when Anita or I will, will tell him something, he's, he believes us. This is the mindset that Jesus is trying to get across to the 12. You need to have that mindset with me. You need to believe me. When I say something, you just need to believe it. Okay? He's not saying blind faith here, but he is saying, I am that trustworthy. And that if you want to be in the kingdom, you come to the king with that humble of a heart. A heart that says, well, clearly I don't have enough information to know what's really happening here. I I clearly don't have enough knowledge. I mean, we have a God of infinite knowledge, and then we have my percentage of the universe that I I know and understand, which is less than 1% of 1% of 1%, and I could even go smaller, but you get the idea. We don't know much. We just think we do. A two- or three-year-old realizes, I don't know much. Because they just told me something I don't know. They go through their whole day and everything's new information every day, almost. It, it, it's so, it's got to be overwhelming, except that God's wired them to do that. So that's kind of cool. So that's kind of the background as we get here to this sheep, flock, shepherd piece. Okay? So let, let's go back through this a little slower. So he says to his disciples, See that you do not despise these little ones. Now, we know from up above that the little ones or little children is Jesus' way of describing a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has humbled themselves to the level of, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to take him at his, if he says something, I'm going to take him uh, for what he said. I'm going to believe it. Okay, and we can look at verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones 
dash, those who believe in me to stumble. So he's defining it for us. So you don't have to look that up to figure that out. You don't have to believe me. That's who that is. But it's, it's a believer whose heart is also early in the process. So oftentimes this is a child. Because that early, or it's a new believer, even if they're an older, uh, older than a child, they have a faith that says, you know, I, my eyes have been opened. I now understand that I can trust him. This is a, a humble faith. This is a trusting faith. It's, it, it's almost naive. Okay. In fact, uh, I was back and forth with a, with an atheist on Twitter, uh, this last couple of weeks and, um, he, it's just, the arrogance is just amazing, but um, just kind of, he, he has trouble that, that we could just believe what we believe. And, and from his standpoint, I can see why he would think that. And, and, I, and, and so we have to realize that the faith that, that Christ gives us at its purest is like a small child just believing mom or dad when they tell him something that's true. So, for some reason, Jesus believes that these 12 are going to be tempted to despise new followers, people who are newer to the faith than they are, which is just about everybody, right? That's why he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. It's an attitude check. But you and I know what that's like. We've been there. We've been on both sides of this. We've had people look down on us and speak to us, or act like we don't have a clue what we're thinking about. Maybe you remember it from when you were newer in your faith, and you were discounted as, uh, oh, that's really cute what you just said or did, but that, you know, they, it's this kind of arrogant look at you like, one day you'll figure out what it's really like to be spiritual. Or maybe you've been one who's dished it out. Probably most of us have done both. So it's an attitude. And so Jesus gives us the reason not to have this attitude in the next verse or the rest of the verse. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. It's a little odd. This is where people get the idea of guardian angels. This is, it kind of sounds like everybody might have a guardian angel. I don't know if we do or not. But it seems clear to me that these little ones have some extra attention from heaven that is directed to them because they're new in their faith or because they're still babes in their faith and they need some extra protection. What do they need protection from? Well, we read the verses of before, those who would cause them to stumble. Those who would, and that word there is the word we get our word scandal from. I know I've been around people who've caused me to stumble in my faith. Unfortunately, I also know I've caused people to stumble. It is something that we probably don't talk about near enough, which is probably why we're pretty vulnerable to it. Why does Jesus say this reason? What's he saying? He's saying, I value them so much that out of all my angels, the ones that minister to them are the ones that see my face. They're the throne room angels. Now, it's possible that all the angels hang out in the throne room. It wouldn't surprise me if it was big enough. But for some reason, he says, it's the ones who see always see my face, as if some could be away on mission, right? I think of uh, uh, angel Michael who was battling 
we in the book of Daniel, and he's battling the prince of Persia to try to get to Daniel so he can answer Daniel's prayer, which is such a dramatic way to think of prayer. And yet he's busy fighting this other dark angel, this demon. And he's like, yeah, it took me two or three weeks to answer your prayer, Daniel, because I was busy. <laughs> I was busy fighting to get to you. And I'm like, wow, the things that happen that we have no clue about, but are real at the same time. It's just... So Jesus is saying, I value the little ones more than you think. So when you're tempted to despise them because of the way they're acting in their faith, remember, I don't want you to do that. I want you to help them. And this is kind of the bottom line for what we're trying to accomplish today. How do we care for new believers? We folk with focused urgency, right? We care for them. All right, and he's going to unpack. What does that look like? It's going, we're going to pursue them when they need our help. We're not going to despise them and belittle them. We're going to lift them up. Here's how he talks about it. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? It's a rhetorical question that's expecting the answer. Of course he's going to do that. He's not going to go, well, I've got 99 more, no big deal. I mean, this is his livelihood. If you look at it purely economically, this shepherd's life, unless this man's not the owner, he could be working for the shepherd. But regardless, one less sheep is one less uh, paycheck. So it's important to him, at least in that regard. Of course, Jesus uses an analogy. and He's saying, I'm the good shepherd. We know this from John 10. He calls himself the great shepherd. In other places, he calls himself the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5. Jesus very much makes a lot of this shepherding perspective and that we're sheep and that we're part of that flock when we trust and follow him. And if he finds it, so it's not a guarantee. So, but but the question here that I think that some of us have sometimes is, so are you saying that this is a, a, a believer who's losing their salvation or is this somebody who um, never was there? I don't really know. And, and I don't know that it, it matters, but I don't know that at the end of the day what Jesus' point is matters. It matters to that, I don't think. We can unpack that more in a second if we need to. And if he finds it, so if he finds the sheep, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. So um, Andy Stanley tells a story. Andy Stanley is a pastor in North Atlanta, and he's told this story years ago um, that I think really captures the emotion here as well as what's happening. He and his two boys were on a hike. with Their, they, their church has doing a men's hike with, with younger sons, and so they went on a hike into the mountains, and they're hiking together, and long story short, one of the boys gets lost. And this is probably an 8-year-old, maybe a 10-year-old, somewhere in there. So a youngster that doesn't really want to be lost in the woods by themselves, okay? So Andy says when he realizes his son is lost and no one knows where he is and that he's out there in the woods somewhere, he says, I did not say to myself, well, I've got my other son and daughter, back. she's back home, I'm good. He didn't say that and said, in fact, I didn't even think about them. All I could think about Find my boy. And he didn't talk to the rest of the folks that were there, and he didn't say to them, if y'all want to help me, I'm going to go looking for my son. He was like, let's go now find my son. And they went after him. There was intensity. 
intention, urgency, focus. You hear all that? And this was for, this is a son, it was already a son of his, which meets the context of already sons of, of God, already followers of Christ that are wandering. So this is someone who is in the faith that's wandering from their faith. Okay, that happens. We all can relate to that. Sometimes we drift a little and we get back on track, and sometimes we drift a long way. Okay? But this is someone who is truly a follower of Christ. That's the context. Discipleship. Sidebar. The fact that, that Luke talks about this with evangel- from an evangelistic angle and Matthew talks about it from a discipleship angle tells me that those two are not very far apart at all. I mean, isn't evangelism teaching the Word of God about how to have a relationship with Him? Isn't discipleship teaching people through the Word of God how to have a relationship with Him? You're just on one side or the other of that line where you've turned, changed, been converted. And that's a a spiritual work. That's not something we do. So really, evangelism is just discipleship that happens before you've trusted Christ as Savior. And discipleship is teaching them about Christ after they have. And sometimes we don't know where people are. And that's okay. We're trying to help them figure that out. Sometimes the journey is pretty messy and confusing. And that's okay. The point is, are you heading in the right direction? Are you walking down the narrow road? Or are you in the broad road that leads to destruction? That's that's what he's challenging us to here. He's saying, are we caring for new believers in our midst with a focused intensity? urgency. Okay, that tells me not just this, but certainly says children's ministry, which I'm pointing to our children's wing down the hall, is incredibly important. And when I say children's ministry, I am not saying the 45 minutes that they get with the kids on Sunday morning. I'm saying what happens at home. I'm saying what happens all week. This is a this is just reinforcing what they should be already hearing at home. Okay? Children's ministry is family ministry. And who are the ministers of the home? Mom and dad. Right? When you have both mom and dad, and when you don't, then you do the best you can with what you have. And God is faithful. We encourage the children while you're here. When you send them down, we want to encourage them that they're, what they're hearing from you is sane, <laughs> okay? Because they're probably not hearing it at school, depending on where they do school. They're probably not hearing it from their friends. They're probably not hearing about it online. And they need to hear from somebody else they know loves and cares for them that mom and dad are on the right track so that when you say it, it gets some traction. Okay, I'll give you another example of that. Ken does a great job with our youth every Sunday night. He teaches them through the Word of God very lovingly, very patiently, very much in a way they get. And he says a lot of the same things over and over and over. And then he takes them to camp in the summer. And it's like a light bulb goes off. And it's like, oh, you won't believe what the preacher said this week and what they what I learned in the, this Bible study. And they're telling Ken this, and he's just shaking his head going, yeah, yeah heard that before. He doesn't say anything to them. The point is, he's been saying that for 51 weeks, and so for the 52nd week they hear it, but because somebody else they think cares about them said it, 
but that just shows you what really matters. It's not what the person on the platform says that really matters. The reason that got traction was because of the 51 weeks. So moms and dads and others who are raising kids in the faith, it's not what I say or anybody else says in their life. If they're hearing it at home on a consistent basis, then God will use other people, and they might even feel like they did it. Your faithfulness is what did it. The contrast to that is there too. Because if you're not doing that and you're relying on a church or a youth group to do that, you're going to be disappointed in the end, I think. Because that's not enough. That's not loving them in a way that's going to give them a foundation. Because the world is going to beat away at that humble faith that says, I believe the words of Jesus because Jesus said them. He ends with this. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So, God's will, right? That's a massive subject. Let me see if I can kind of give you three. There's different levels or different kinds of God's will, okay? There's the God's will that says, God says, I decree something. Let there be light, and there was light. There was no opposition to that that could have any way in any way possible stop that from happening in the beginning god created the heavens here you know god said let there be light and there was light that's his decreed will it just happens there's also a will where he he says um you know love the lord your god with all your heart there's there's you know the ten commandments these are be the will of precept these are laws of god that are written that we can choose to obey or disobey that's a different kind of the will of God, okay? This one is a third kind, and it's called the will of disposition. And it's basically kind of, it's like he's saying, I don't want, I, I actually marked the verse so that I wouldn't forget how it said, Ezekiel, don't hear anybody quoting Ezekiel very often, do you? At least not me. Ezekiel 33.11, but this is good. It says, and this is God speaking through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It happens, but he, it is not his will that the wicked would die and not have redemption. It is his desire, but he's not going to force it because he gives us the freedom to reject. So that's his disposition. When we say, in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish, that doesn't mean that he can make it or not make it simply because he's going to decree it. Because otherwise we would be puppets. And he's not doing that. He says, I have my sovereign will. I give you grace and faith. But I also uh, created you for human responsibility. And you have, you have, uh, you're responsible for how you respond to me. And so we have both of those living in tension in Scripture. And so that's how we can look at this and feel good that God wants people to know him. But he's not going to make them. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we take care of new believers? Instead of despising them, we pursue them. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they eat the forbidden fruit. They feel shame. They feel that they have very, oh, it's gotten really breezy in here because now they have realized they have no clothes on. And so they run and they hide from, they hide from the breeze. They hide from God. They hide because they're ashamed. Because now they understand 
shame, at least what it feels like because of sin. God does what? The first thing God does after his children obey him is he pursues them out of mercy. And he shows them compassion. His first act is to clothe them. Have you ever thought about where he got the clothing? Don't think the gap was open yet, so he didn't go there. I suspect he got wool from a sheep. We don't know. It's not written down. But somewhere along the way, I think the first sacrifice of a sheep happened. He clothed them. Mercy. You know, uh, we, we in the church would be a whole lot better off if we showed each other more mercy and grace. Especially those who are newer to the faith. And there's times when we're the one, because of our immature faith, sometimes people despise us, it feels like whether they're doing it or not, it sometimes feels like that. Okay? If that's how you feel, or if people are coming at you and you feel like that's happening to you, take solace in this. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father. You have angels who have your back that are there to help you through those difficult times when you are struggling in that faith. Think about your kids. Think about your grandkids, your nieces and your nephews, your neighbors, the little kids. I want you to think about them, especially those who have trusted Christ and are just beginning the journey. Okay? All right? If, if they're a little boy that's new to their faith, he's going to be an obnoxious little boy still sometimes. It's going to happen. Let's not try to hold him to a standard that's not reasonable. Or if we do, let's just make sure we're pouring out grace and mercy if they don't please us, meet our standard. It's not about whether they meet our standard. It's God, he loves them, he values them. And this is why we need to be very intentional about caring for the little ones and making sure that we're acting in a way that is not only not despising, but lifting them up and encouraging them in their walk. Easier said than done, huh? Lord, as we think about this in light of the Lord's Supper that we're about to celebrate, Lord, we think about the sacrifice that Jesus, that you made through your son Jesus on the cross. You sent your son. You know what it's like to be a parent, to, to be a dad, and that's in some sense something we really have a hard time understanding and comprehending. You sent your son to show us the way to be an example, but also to, to show us um, not only how, but to empower us to do. And so whether we are a Christian and this is day one, or whether we've been a Christian for years, Lord, at the end of the day, you call us to a childlike faith. Not a childish faith, a childlike faith that trusts the source because the source is trustworthy. That we take you at your word when you say something. We value your word so much that we immerse ourselves in it, that we read it, that we think about it, that we pray through it, that we execute it, that we, we live it out. Lord, as we think about how much more difficult these days are getting, as we look at our dark world and it feels like it's spinning out of control, 
Lord, we must prepare our children and grandchildren for what's coming. We must urgently, with great focus and intention, care for them. But we've got we've to say no to some other things to make room for this. We've got to create some margin in our lives so that we're not always making excuses for why we're not doing it. We've got to say no to some hard things, maybe even some good things, so that we can do what it is you've called us to do. Lord, if we have children, it's your will that we disciple them. There's no argument there. It is your will. Are we? Lord, I know your goal isn't to beat us up and to send us out feeling full of guilt. I know that your heart is to see us reorient our hearts around yours and therefore reorient our lives around your agenda. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us that obviously feels some level of of guilt or certainly feels some level of, I can do better. Lord, you're not just telling us to do better. You're saying you love us regardless of what we've done or not done. You love us. That love is so powerful and so vast that, that when necessary, you send angels for us. but you love us too much to leave us where we are. And so you poke and prod and spur us on to do the things we should do because you love us and you love those that you've put under us or that you've given to us. And so, Lord, I pray for, in particular today, parents. I think my heart is burdened for single moms in particular, single dads that have, are trying to do both. And it's just impossible, it feels like, because no dad knows how to be a mom and no mom knows how to be a dad, really, not really. And our children know the difference. I just pray your mercy and your grace on families, but especially single parent families or parent families where grandparents are raising kids. I lift them up to you. And of course, I lift up moms and dads working together. I pray for those who don't have kids, but they want to pour into children. I pray that you would point them in the right direction so they can do that because we all need the help. And I pray that children would be able to recognize because of the protection of your angels, shepherds from wolves. They'll be able to recognize a sheep versus a sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is why you send the angels to help protect them. I pray you'll continue to do that. That you'll help us maybe sit up a little straighter and take a little more notice to the fact that you're doing this and that we probably ought to be more on our game as far as being intentionally, actively loving on our children and the new believers in our midst, no matter how old they are. We need your help. We need your favor. We ask for it all in the mighty name of Jesus who is fully sufficient to to carry this out. Thank you for the cross in Jesus' name.